A small group this morning. Must have heard I was preaching or something. <laughs> okay, our passage this morning is the last three paragraphs of Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, and beginning at verse 31. Before we read, let's pray. Father, still our hearts and our minds before You, that we might truly hear Your Word. That Your Word might sink deep within us, Father. So that we will be not merely hearers, but also doers of that Word. And Father, I ask that You would speak through me in spite of me. That whatever I say might be in fact Your Word. And that no word but Yours might be heard. And we thank You, Father, for Your grace, for Your provision, for that marvelous provision in Jesus. Thank You, Father, for all these things. In that name above all names. The name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Matthew 25 and verse 31. If you just flip back a page or two, and just take a quick glance at what's been going on before this, uh, Matthew in chapter 24 and verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. He hadn't seen them before. Really? But he answered them and said, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then his disciples come and say, Hey, what, what, how can this be? What's happening? When is, when is it going to happen? What's going to be the sign of your coming? And so on. And uh, Jesus makes it quite clear that he's talking about... He says, Look, there are three things that are important to remember. I will come again. There will be a resurrection. And there will be an accounting. Verse 31. Chapter 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. 
Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we come to, when we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? That he will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. found it interesting to know that this teaching of Jesus regarding this final judgment of humanity was assigned to us at the conclusion of our discussions of the parables of Jesus. It's almost like Bill or whoever assigned the passages was saying, look, if you haven't got the message by now, if you haven't yet acted on the invitation to receive the grace of God and to trust that the Lord Jesus has done it all for you. Then there remains only one fate. And that is a terrible destination you really want to avoid. We saw it's uh, this parable. I'm not sure it's a parable, but it, well, treat it as a parable. Um, comes at the end of a series of teachings, um, and that began in, in in chapter 24. And while there are those who like to construct timelines for the end of the ages, Jesus specifically said, in uh, toward the end of chapter 24, he says. Concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And the whole point of these chapters seems to be that since the date of Jesus' return is not knowable to mere humanity, it is our task and our commission to remain obediently watchful and active in the service of our Lord until that momentous day. Besides, if you make any, even a casual reading of interpretations of um, the prophetic um, passages in the Scriptures, you'll discover that there are 
several mutually exclusive schools of thought regarding the timing and the exact sequence of events. And who can count the number of failed predictions that have been made regarding our Lord's imminent, visible arrival on earth? It's staggering how many people seem to have failed to read that Jesus said, hey, you don't know. You simply don't know. And you will not know. These three paragraphs or so, depending on how your Bible is divided, um, if, if this was all that we had, if this was all the Scripture that we had, then it would be easy to misinterpret it. Because we would conclude that our eternal destiny is dependent on our doing a certain very few things. Welcoming strangers, feeding and clothing the needy, visiting folk in hospital and prison. That's it. That's all. Done. That would be easy. It would not require anything in the regard in, in approaching faith because our eternal destiny would be determined entirely by our action or inaction. But that's not what the Scriptures say. Repeatedly, Jesus has told us that only those who believe in Him, who trust and love Him as Savior, as Messiah, as Lord, will see eternal life. And even here, Jesus indicates that the favored group will inherit, will receive the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, God has already prepared and provided for us. He loves us so much. He yearns to be in a vital living relationship with us. In fact, He wants that so badly that as Max Lucado put it, He would rather die than live without us. Salvation is entirely God's doing. We merely receive it by faith, by trusting the sufficiency of what the Lord Jesus accomplished on the cross on our behalf. We trust Him because He died and because He is risen from the dead. We trust Him because He is, even at this time, even at this moment, Interceding for us. Presenting the blood of His self-sacrifice to the Father as the more than sufficient atonement for our sin and for our sinfulness. So back to the text. As I said, there are three important points that must not be forgotten, points that Jesus has been teaching all the way through these two chapters. Jesus will return. There will be a resurrection. 
and there will be a final judgment. Jesus has been speaking about these uh, for several chapters, and this passage is something of a summary. It's interesting to note that at the same time as Jesus was teaching these things to his earliest disciples, his enemies were finalizing their plans for his arrest and execution. So Jesus opens this summary with a time frame. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. At some point in history, maybe today, maybe a thousand years from now, Jesus will return. He came the first time for salvation, but the second time He will come for judgment. And the way Jesus begins reminds us a bit of Daniel 7. Um, In verses 9 and 10, we read in Daniel's vision, Thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment And the books were opened. Here the Son of Man is the judge. Don't miss the point. Jesus frequently referred to himself as the Son of Man. Echoing the title that was given to him in Daniel 7. And before him all the nations of the earth will appear. Every person, whether living or dead at that point, will stand before the judge of all the earth. But this is no ordinary courtroom scene. There's no jury. There are no charges read. No witnesses called. No testimony given. There are no lawyers present either for the prosecution or for the defense. As a consequence, there's no debate. The judge's verdict is final and there is no appeal. Before him in this courtroom, all the nations are gathered. Now, many who try to fit this into some apocalyptic time frame see these peoples as the Gentiles who survived the Great Tribulation. But when you read through carefully, this, doesn't, this kind of interpretation isn't necessary to understand what Jesus is saying. So imagine this courtroom scene. It must be an enormous courtroom. Jesus, the Son of Man, the King, separates people from people as easily as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. That's an interesting thought. 
I don't know about you, but I've never had much to do with either sheep or goats. Um, so, I needed a little help understanding the analogy. So, I did a little research. And I came across a, a short article by one Becky Bennett, who wrote about her personal experience with sheep and goats. And she said, I have to confess, I really don't care for sheep. Growing up, I spent several summers reluctantly shepherding our family's small flock of sheep and found them to be helpless, flighty, impulsive, silly, lemming-like creatures. And said, granted, they may not have had the highest opinion of me as a shepherd either. But the sheep were wonderful compared to the goats. Perhaps it says something about goats that my parents never expected me to herd them. They were carefully contained, staked out to act as lawnmowers, rather than being allowed to graze in the desert like the sheep. Independent, adventurous, stubborn, persistent, voracious, and agile, the goats were trouble if they were ever off their tethers. The smelly billy goat could be downright dangerous. So no, I wasn't fond of sheep, but I really disliked the goats. But my mother loved her goats, and I know others who think their goats are just about the sweetest animals around. Personally, she writes, I think there are good reasons Jesus chose goats to represent self-centered, compassionless people. However, I realize neither sheep nor goat characteristics are immediately discernible in the praise and condemnation Jesus gave in his parable in Matthew 25. And since sheep and goats are both accepted as sacrifices in the Old Testament, it may not be good to read too much in Jesus' use of goats here, but to keep, his, keep the focus on the attitudes and actions of humans. So the judgment. Jesus' division of the peoples is surprising to both groups. Those placed on the right of the judge, the favored position by tradition, the sheep are perplexed when he says, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they said, huh? They just don't understand. Sure, they fed and clothed the needy, but they reasoned, wouldn't anyone do that? And yes, they had an open-door policy regarding strangers and immigrants. But that, they reason, is what civilized people do. And sure, they visited folk and, uh, sick folk and prisoners, but they had been there themselves and had appreciated those visits. So what was so extraordinary about them that they should inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world or that they should receive eternal life? Then Jesus 
reveals the awesome and terrible truth. When they thought they saw a homeless person, it was Jesus Himself who had been walking the streets, wearing inadequate clothing that couldn't keep out the winter cold, looking for a hot meal and a place to sleep out of the storm. Jesus was that refugee from the war-torn country that no one wanted to be in their town. It was Jesus Himself who had been forgotten in the prison cell and in the hospital's emergency waiting room. But because their hearts were full of love for the Lord Jesus, because of His prior love for them, it just bubbled out of their lives, for the, out of the lives of these folk, and they helped, they welcomed, they visited because they believed in the Lord Jesus, out of their hearts flowed rivers of living water. And everyone around them benefited. Then there's the other group. The people described as the goats. These folk had an interesting theology. That it's a common theology. These folk were sure that because God obviously judged by weighing their good deeds against their bad, they were sure that they were in. They know that God is interested in the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed, and they were ready for Him. They've been making long mental lists of the many times they've ministered to those in need about them. They can recall detailed descriptions of what they did. They can total up large sums of money given uh, that they gave, complete with tax receipts. They've even put in long hours working for various charities, fighting for racial equality or protesting substandard housing, that they had had no time for religion or religious bigots was irrelevant. I mean, imagine the foolishness of expecting anyone to believe that there is only one way to gain the favor of God. But they fail to recognize that all their efforts, all their giving, was from the wrong motives. And that they had already received their reward. But again, the king doesn't look for evidence and he doesn't call witnesses. He doesn't ask for their income tax returns. None of that. He simply announces his condemnation. And they are astounded. Shocked. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice it wasn't prepared for human beings. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You didn't welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison. You didn't visit me. And they're saying to themselves, wait a minute. Get all those things. 
not infrequently, we find it to be the case that the Bible interprets itself. And one passage will throw explanatory light on another. Back in November, Kerry uh, introduced us to a couple of characters in Luke 7. It's a situation that only Luke records. Luke 7 and verse 36. And just for, for the context, I'll read it. Luke 7 and 30, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flax of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with her ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this that who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Two characters. One was a sinful woman. Tradition has it that she was a prostitute. The other was Simon, a Pharisee, host to Jesus and his disciples that day. In the light of what we're, our, our passage in Matthew, this sinful woman would likely be one of those on Jesus' right hand. She loved the Lord greatly because she knew she had been forgiven. And although we're not told anything more about this woman, that love, would most likely be expressed by her actions toward others from that day forward. And then there was Simon, the Pharisee. He thought he didn't need a Savior. He thought himself to be sinless because he obeyed even the minutiae of the Old Testament law. 
He just could not understand Jesus. And he was offended when Jesus told the woman that her sins had been forgiven. Describing himself as the good shepherd, in John's Gospel, Jesus commented that the sheep hear the good shepherd's voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Even before that day of judgment, Jesus already knows his sheep by name. They know Him. And because they know Him, they willingly follow. But, sheep and goats have dramatically different temperaments. While sheep are content to be led, goats are intent on doing their own thing. Frank Sinatra saying, remember, I did it my way. Bad news. And the question that comes to us this morning is, are you, am I, a sheep or a goat? What will be the judgment of the Lord Jesus? Now be careful how you answer yourself. Be careful how you answer that question. Because the human heart, the Scriptures tell us, is desperately wicked. And it easily deceives us. So, in anticipation of that day of judgment, in our own lives, we should be looking for the evidence. Is service to others a priority in your life? Are you focused on survival and just getting through the day? The fantastic thing is that we can always change our eternal destiny. It is not etched in stone yet. It's never too late to change our tomorrow. All we need to do is come in honesty to the Lord Jesus. Acknowledge our need and receive His grace. It really is that simple. Just receive His grace, His forgiveness. Just like that nameless woman in Luke's story. Our God is a promise-keeping God. Jesus promised, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And those rivers of living water will refresh young and old alike. From the baby in the womb to the old person dying alone in hospital. And that, in turn, will declare our qualification for the inheritance that's waiting to be claimed when the Lord Jesus returns. 
Let's pray. Father, we come to You. And we are so thankful that You have done everything for us. That in Jesus, the penalty of our sinfulness has been paid because of Your love. And we thank You, Father, that in Him we can come to You knowing that by Your grace, not by anything that we have done, but by Your grace alone, we have been cleansed. We have been forgiven. That Your Holy Spirit dwells within us. And that His business is to change us from the inside so that we will become a blessing to everyone around us. Thank You, Father. Lord, according to Your grace, do that marvelous work in us that we might be seen to be disciples of the Lord Jesus, the sheep of Your pasture, that You might receive glory and honor and praise because of us, because the Lord Jesus. And we give you our thanks and our praise in His precious name. Amen.